On Sunday nights, we have been, hopefully as you know by now, going through a series that we call Unswerving, the stories of bold faith. And we've looked at those in both the New Testament and the Old. Tonight we'll be in the New Testament. As I was... uh, I try to have a very firm discipline about having my sermon done and ready to go on Thursday. When I leave the office, it's in my notebook, have it prepared. Uh, That doesn't mean things won't change and fluctuate, that the Spirit won't lead in different directions, but it's ready to go. And sometimes God will teach you a lesson that goes right along with the sermon, and you didn't even plan it. And something happens that's smarter than you. We call that God. So Tyler's been off school all week, uh, except for Monday, because, of course, it goes to Goddard. So they're out of school more than they're in school, which is encouraging. They go to school Monday, which is, of course, is a useless day. But then they're, they're out of school the rest of the week. And so Tyler's been asking me for... For quite a while, if we would go camping, and usually uh, once or twice a year, I'll relent and we'll go camping. Um, not, admittedly, my most favorite thing to do in the world. But he loves to do it. He enjoys the time together, and I enjoy the time together. So this year, we, we tried a new place. We went to the Harvey County East, up just uh, east of Newton. And they have a beautiful lake there, a little park. And it was just a perfect evening. Of course, it's late October, and so that means that camping is a different experience overnight. Now, I knew that going into it, but I was willing to risk myself and the life of my son to bond together. I was telling my my shepherd who loves to camp, uh, Doug Wagner, he he laughs when I call 40 degrees cold because... He and Karen from Minnesota, so, you know, 40 degrees is balmy to them. But, uh, anyway, I was telling him about that, and he said, you know, you need to be up off the ground there, Levering. You need to make sure you at least have that going for you. And so he was gracious enough and probably not wanting to see the preacher come down with pneumonia. He has a, a huge camping stash, and he loaned me a couple of these mats. And you wouldn't think that such a small thing could make such a big difference in what it feels like to be in a small tent when it gets down 40 degrees. But this little device helps, made a big difference. I wouldn't want to stay on this forever, but something changes when you're on the mat. And so that's what we're going to talk about tonight Not so much my experience or Tyler's experience on the mat, but another character who was on a mat for his whole life and how that affected his interaction with Jesus. I'm sure you've heard the story before, but hopefully tonight we'll give you some new perspective and some lessons that will apply in your own life. The theme for this series has been unswerving, and the theme verse has been Hebrews 10.23, where the writer says, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised 
is faithful. We understand that no matter what circumstances come and, and no matter how our story changes, his faithfulness and his promise doesn't change. So turn with me to John chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 1 through 15. I'll be reading, I think, from the ESV. You may have a different translation, but uh, follow along if you will. John chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. One man who was there, who had been there, who had been an invalid, rather, for 38 years. Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time. He said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred. Excuse me, when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. At once the man was healed. He took up his bed and walked. Now, that day was the Sabbath, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, the man that said to me, take up your bed and walk. They answered, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing more worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. The first thing you notice in uh, this story is that very likely, as you were reading along, depending on the translation you have, you may have thought, well, I skipped a verse. Um, Verse 4 in some translations say, From time to time an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one into the pool after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease he had. Now just by a quick show of hands, how many of you have that where it's actually in the text? How many of you have a translation where it's in the text? All right. How many of you have that in a footnote outside of the text? All right. You may be wondering, well, why is that? Well, in the original language, the letters were not written as we write in English. First of all, we write from left to right, and they wrote it from right to left. And we put breaks in between the words. They wrote it in one continuous string of letters as they were copying it down. Now, as you can imagine, such a process, that could potentially lead to a lot of error. Or at the very worst, when you made a mistake, you think, now, great, I have to throw away this whole scroll or this whole parchment because of one mistake. And so many times the copyist would put footnotes into the margin in the text. So there's a lot of debate in textual criticism. Are these words 
God-inspired, God-breathed, ordained in the text? Or is it some copious commentary about uh, why what was happening in the story was happening? Well, some people think that either they were non-inspired commentary that the copyist was writing out there, Others think that it was inspired commentary that was the result of an error that the copyist then wrote to the side in hopes that future copyists would write it back in. You can see how human beings mess up the Word of God quite easily. You say, oh, this is, this is a, a, a degradation of the integrity of the text. This is a big problem. Well, it's not really a big problem because as interesting and debatable as verse 4 is, uh, most... Textual critics, most experts, and which, of which I am not, believe that verse 4 does not belong in the inspired text. It was a sort of commentary. But even for those, if we give those who debate and say, well, we think it's inspired for these reasons, you need to know <clears throat> that it's what I call a belly button question. And I know I've explained this to you before, but uh, sometimes when working with teenagers and teaching them about the Word of God, we would get a belly button question. You might call it chasing a rabbit, but I like to think of it as a belly button question. And the reason I call it a belly button question is because sometimes a very insightful teen would ask a question reading into the text and asking a question that we couldn't fully know. A belly button question, as an example, would be, did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? Sunday night crowd thinks, well, I've never thought about that before. That would be a good series. No, that would be a terrible series. It's a belly button question. It's interesting to think about. It's, it's fun to debate, but ultimately there's no eternal consequence on whichever side of the issue you fall. Conservative or liberal? Belly button or no? Whatever you believe about these things, we'll still all be in heaven. And so help me. If you ask one of those questions in heaven, you will be slapped. That is silly. That is silly. That misses the very big picture of God to focus on the belly button things. So you ask about verse 4, and I say to you, it's not important in the eternal relevance of God's story. For us to focus on one single verse, you say, good, why have you spent four minutes explaining why it doesn't matter? Well, that's what preachers do. Okay, verse 1 says it was a feast of the Jews. Now, there's some argument over this, whether this was a Passover or not. Why does it matter? Because it affects deeply the timeline of Jesus' ministry. Most evidence and most believe that it was, it was indeed a Passover, but the point is arguable. I bring that up so that you know that the, the reason that it does not say a Passover feast because there's an, that requires inter- reading into the text something that isn't there. The location of Bethesda is also called the House of Mercy. And this is a beautiful description of what was about to happen. Now, if we want to look at, uh, get a visual of where this is, here's uh, Jerusalem in Jesus' time. And you have this on your handout, I hope. And uh, if you would be interested to know the whereabouts of this story, here it is. The Sheep Gate. Um, there's a little opening. You have to look up here. I'm, oh, that was not the laser button. Okay, here we go. Uh, here we go. Uh, right up here, this is uh, this little gap right here is called the Lion Gate. 
And there's a, all sorts of interesting trivia about why the gates were named the way they were. We're not going to go into that, but there's where it was, and here's where it happened. Here's a, if you give a little three-dimensional view, this is where the sheep gate was located. Uh, I'll give you a point of reference here. This is the lion gate. Okay. 2,000 years later, when we look at it in modern day, here's what this location looks like. Picture in your mind, if you will. <laughs> this is a really cool point. Oh, there it is. Ah, oh, hooray. <laughs> um, picture in your mind this. <laughs> this is the, the location of where they believe the sheep gate was located. And you say, well, that's interesting. I don't see you see kind of the, the colonnades or the, the pillars of what used to be the colonnades. And if you look down into the next picture... You look over the edge, which is what you're doing now, uh, there is the, uh, boy, if you could bring down those house lights, that would be a, a great help right at this moment so they could kind of see that picture just a little bit better of the pools. And you probably can't see in this picture, but on, on my monitor, it's vivid. <laughs> you can see the pools of water right here. And you say, that is it? Yeah, that's it. This is um, the actual location where this story most likely would have taken place. All right, well, that's all very interesting. Good textual evidence, good expository geography and, and location and history and all of that. What is the reason for the story being in the text? What, when, when the Spirit guided John to write down these words, why did he pick this story, choosing the words that he did and choosing to tell it as he did? I think there are three. Number one, when we think about the lessons from the paralyzed man and what he was, what we're trying to learn as we think about what the text means and how we apply it. The first is <clears throat> he was certainly unable to do it himself. He had no ability to achieve healing by himself, whether it was getting himself to the water or getting someone else to get him to the waters of healing. We have been trying to heal ourselves for a long time and been doing a very poor job of doing it. We fill our lives and our hearts with things that we believe will give us fulfillment and meaning and purpose and healing from the sin that we have, but we cannot do it ourselves. We are paralyzed much like the man in the story, unable to change our condition ourselves. We, like the man, need healing, and we are incompetent. We are not able. We are impotent. We are not powerful. We are inactive, which means many times we're just not even willing we can make excuses for why we are not healed, but it does not change our lame state. Without Jesus, we are hopeless, uh, hopeless, pitiful creatures, knowing that we need healing, but we are unable to reach it. Jesus, of course, is the answer in his story and in ours. Well, it's interesting in verse 6, 
The text says this, when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been there in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? And that's interesting to me because it reminds us that Jesus understands our hopeless, eternal condition. He understands your condition, where you are, where you've been, why you're lying there, how long you've been lying there, and what your excuses are for continuing to lie there. Psalm 139 says this about God. O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. Isn't that amazing? Doesn't that fill you with a sense of awe over who God is? That he knows you so well and so intimately? Beyond just amazing and awesome, and ought to be a bit scary. I would imagine that if you are married, that you know your spouse better now than you did ten years ago. You understand their idiosyncrasies. You understand when they breathe, when they go, you know what that means. You know, their, their facial tics. Christy tells me all the time, I, I know exactly what you're thinking. What are you talking about? I can, you're, it's written on your face. You're not very good at hiding it. And if you're married long enough and you have children, you begin to learn what makes them tick as well. You understand in God's divine sense of humor that he can take a two children who, in theory, have the same set of DNA, were raised in a pretty close to the same environment, and be totally different. And yet, you know what makes them tick and what makes them work. On a much more infinite scale, God knows us in the same way. He knows it before you do it. He knows it before you think it. He knows it before you say it. He knows you. That should fill you with love and intimacy toward God, but it may bring a a sense of holy fear to you as well. Number two, he had to want healing. I think that's, I, I don't know if that strikes anyone else as an unusual question to ask, but in verse six he says, Do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? Now, I stand here before you, 38 years old, and I can, I think. If I could put myself in the position of a paralyzed man, that if I had been like that my whole life, of course I would want to get well. Of course, who wouldn't? But people will surprise you sometimes. It reminds us that Jesus will act, and he will always act faithfully, and he will never let down his end of the deal But he will only do that if we want him to. Isn't that amazing? That the God of heaven can and has done 
everything. He's created everything we have and are. The thoughts you're thinking right now are only possible because God knit together your neurons in your mother's womb. That God forged the pathways in your mind. That the the air that you breathe is His, that He made it for you to live. That the organs that pump your blood through your body are there because God made them and He created them. Everything in the universe is in submission to His holy purpose and His divine will. And the zenith of all His creation, sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, are the only ones that have the option of choosing. He wants to heal us. He wants to save us. He wants to rescue us. He wants to redeem us. He wants to sanctify us and make us holy. But he's left that choice in our hands. Some, even aware of their pitiful state, have been rendered invalid by their despair. They've given up hope. Oh, the most heartbreaking experience I ever had at teen camp was a time when a, a, one of our teens, we had this experience where we'd let them write out a prayer. and The adults would go and take down those prayers and agree to pray through every single one. If they put their name down, we would go and find them and pray with them and This one young man asked us to pray for his dad because he had lost his hope. If you've been there, you know how heartbreaking of a statement that is. And if you're here tonight and you've lost your hope, I hope you know that Jesus wants you to want healing Many could be healed, but I'm not sure they want to be. Maybe they've been deceived. Maybe they're in despair. Maybe they've given up. Maybe they think that their sickness or their malady is beyond the reach of the Messiah. Maybe when a person wants it but realizes they're incapable of achieving it themselves, they understand their true gospel need. There's an interesting phrase that Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. If you're turning in your Bibles, turn there. It's a verse that used to scare me, but now that I understand it a little better, it helps me and gives me hope. Jesus said this, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it, but small is the gate to narrow the road that leads to life, only a few find it. I used to stay up late at night in fear of that verse. For Jesus to say that only a few would be saved, oh, I, I didn't even know. I mean, there are surely many more righteous people than I. How could I ever get in? But here, if you understand this passage, that wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, And many want to enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few want to 
to find it. This helps us understand deeply when Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those are those people who want to find healing and realize they can't do it on their own and that they need a Savior. Step out of the gospel picture for a minute and just think of a person who's been severely injured, maybe in a car wreck or, or has had some traumatic physical injury that puts them on the brink of paralysis. There will be a point when the doctors and the physical therapists will say, if this person, if this he or she, if they want to be healed, if they want to find healing from this injury, then they will. They have to have the fight in them. You know, you've seen people like this. They physically or emotionally or spiritually, they just give up and they throw in the towel. And it's those people who give up that are in the most danger. Because they've stopped wanting it. they stopped fighting for it. they stopped yearning for it. They've, they've thrown their hands up in despair. The ones who truly want it. And the ones who don't, there's a world of difference. My question to you is, do you want it? And how badly do you want it? I I need to, because they're all taking such diligent notes on their phones, so let me pick on a teenager tonight. Neil, come here, buddy. Now, Neil... I want you, you looked so uncomfortable in the pew there. Uh, would you just lie down on this mat? Yeah, in any way you like. Now, can you imagine for a moment, Neil, how old are you? 16. So imagine yourself at 54 years old. Impossible, right? Almost dead, right? Yeah. At 54 years old, having never moved from that mat. Is that mat comfortable? More than the pew? Okay. It's certainly more comfortable than the cement floor, just a, a, a few centimeters below you. Isn't it strange that some people... In their state of paralysis, in their state of spiritual paralysis, get so comfortable where they are. That Jesus must ask him, do you want to get well? He has to ask him, are you ready to leave your stationary position? Are you ready to leave where you are? Familiar, comfortable as it is, and begin to do something that's unfamiliar. I mean, maybe he's been there this way his whole life. But to do what Jesus calls him to do, to rise and walk, to us, that's a normal thing. Taking one step in front of the other is something you give no conscious thought to. 
But this man had to rise from where he was and begin walking, which is something he was not used to doing. It would have been far easier for him, and indeed it seems like from the text, that he had given up. There are all sorts of reasons for him to stop and just stay where he was. When you're in a place of spiritual despair and you've given up, then doing such a thing as walking back to your seat seems like an impossible task. And we think walking, rise and walk, why wouldn't you want to? But there there can come a time for people when they get so focused on the paralysis, they lose sight of what's possible. We can want healing as badly as we want air, but we cannot have it or get it without Jesus. Only Jesus can grant him the healing that he needs, which leads us to our our third point. Once healed, he had to walk. If you come to Jesus, Jesus is such a troublemaker. He will not, he will let you come just as you are, just as I am, without one plea. That beautiful song. But Jesus loves you enough to let you come as you are, but he loves you too much to let you stay that way. Praise God that none of us are in the same condition we were when we began our journey with Jesus in the waters of baptism. Praise God for that. But Jesus is that kind of Savior. He's not the Savior who lets us quietly be to ourselves. He says, come, follow me. Walk with me. Walk in the light. And watch as I change your life and I use your life to change those around you. Healing from Christ means that you commit to the journey And it will be long and difficult at times. Jesus said himself in Matthew 16, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I love this picture of taking up your cross in the same way that he called the man to take up his mat and walk. And when, we, when he held that mat, it represented what he was. And it gave testimony to where Jesus was taking him. And he wasn't allowed to continue to recline on the mat, but rather to take it up and walk. In the same way, you and I are called to take up our cross and not live in all of the stuff we've been rescued from, but to walk. My question for you then is, if you've been healed, are you walking with Jesus? This story, as all stories of the Bible, point to Jesus. Jesus is the true and better invalid. He not only achieved healing, but he was the only one who could achieve healing. He, as he told us to take up our mat and walk, he laid himself down that we might rise, take up our mat, and walk as new creatures. 
By his wounds we have been healed. And only by his wounds. He wanted us to get well. And so he calls us to, to the life and healing that starts in the water. Oh, oh, don't misunderstand. There's no angel stirring these waters. There's nothing magical about it. But it's the point where healing begins. Jesus is the true and better water. You think that water is where life begins and where healing starts. Whether it was water covering the world in Genesis 1, the water washing clean the sin and iniquity of mankind in the flood, the water beginning being the salvation of Israel from their slave masters in Egypt, the water coming from the rock in Exodus, the water that signals the new birth and the new life that is happening Baptism was a part, not just for those in the Christian faith, but it was a part of the Israelites' ceremonial washing. It happened at the temple and at their ritual sacrifices. Water has always been a part of the plan. God wrote it in there. 1 Peter chapter 3, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight people, were brought safely through the water. Baptism corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God of a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. John later reminds us that at Jesus' death there was a sudden flow of blood and water. And while the medical interest, uh, explanation of that is interesting, the spiritual application is what's so powerful. You see, that blood was unlike any that had ever been sacrificed before or since. It was eternally pure, spotless, and without blemish. And the water was not only to cleanse us that we might be whiter than snow, but also to heal us more fully than Naaman the leper himself. You see, the water and the blood are inseparable. To have one is to require both. Without the blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And without the water, you see, there is no connection to the blood. If you want his blood, well, you can't achieve it on your own. You can lie there spiritually lame and eternally invalid, eternally paralyzed, fully aware of your condition, and yet powerless to do anything to change it. You need a Messiah to change your helpless condition. You need his blood that you might have life abundant. And the only way to get to the blood is through the water. You need to be washed that you might finally have the healing that you've always needed, but that you could not get to. So my question for you is the same question asked of Paul. Why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. And when you come to the water... You will find life, you will find cleansing, and you will finally find healing. And then you are called to take up your mat and walk. Tonight, if you are ready to make the walk and 
be covered in the blood, then I invite you to the water. Whatever your need might be tonight, I'll meet you down front as together we stand and sing.